This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hey everyone, we have a crossover episode for you today. Uh, so we're actually going to be playing a episode from our sister podcast here at Schroeder's called Investors Download because they very recently had the co-head of the value team Nick Kierich on along with Ron Asana who is the senior advisor to Schroeder's in the New York office. Uh, in this episode, Ron and Nick chat about value's recent and long-term performance as well as some of the opportunities you might see throughout the regions in 2022. Give it a listen and if you enjoy, please be sure to check out more from Investors Download. They release new episodes every Thursday. Enjoy. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Lens. I'm Ron Insana, Senior Advisor to Schroeder's North America. And as we get into 2022, the growth versus value debate continues apace, as it did last year, where we saw periods of outperformance for each. And at the end of the year, growth, at least in the United States, is considerably better than value by the final day of 2021. Will that remain true both domestically and abroad? For 2022, that is an open question. And joining us now to answer it is Nick Kirich. He is Fund Manager of Equities, joining us from Schroeder's in London. Nick, thanks for being with us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Great to be here. All right. So let's let's talk a little about value and growth. It was it was a slugfest last year. There were periods of outperformance for both. And then value, at least in the U.S., kind of fell off toward the end of the year and, and growth reasserted itself. But wh- where do you see the relationship today? Yeah, that's exactly what happened last year. And it Therefore, you know, makes me incredibly surprised when everyone's getting excited after the first three weeks of this year because it starts to happen again. I'm not falling for that trick again. <laughs> um, uh, look, I, 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 I think it, this debate about value versus growth all comes back to why you think value works or if you think value works. You know, is it a clever back test? Is it led by some kind of interest rate environment? Is it politics or thematics that drive it over cycles? I mean, fundamentally, I take a very basic philosophical view on this, which is, Value investing basically is based on the one thing in stock markets that never changes. I mean, everything is changing, right? The, the politics, the thematics, the interest rates, everything. But the one thing that's not is humans. The human emotional element of markets is as strong as it's ever been. You know, people get very positive, very greedy, and then they get very fearful and very scared. And you know, we've seen that over time through a cycle. So personally, because I think humans are still humans, I think you know, some of the tremors we've seen in value and some of that potential for that to to mean revert and give quite a lot of performance in the future. I think there's every reason to think that over the next three to five years, you're going to see a sustained improvement in the value outperformance. So, Nick, it's been argued by many people that as interest rates go up or as central bank policy becomes tighter, which is true kind of in the Anglo-West and certainly in Australia, that value um, historically outperforms growth. And yet, while growth has come in rather dramatically, the NASDAQ down more than 10% 10% in the U.S. from its most recent high, we haven't really seen value take over. In fact, it seems to be correcting as well. Can you explain that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there I'd kind of pull out. The first is on this thing about the relationship between value or growth and interest rates and, and inflation. And that's become a very, very powerful narrative, one that a lot of people buy into, and they would show you evidence that there is a relationship there, all to do with the discounting of future cash flows and how, you know, in a more growthy environment or in a you know, low inflation or low interest rate environment, you can justify a higher multiple for growth stocks, and that's why they've been doing so well. Actually, 
the evidence on that, if you look back over a longer period of time, and I'm talking 30 or 40 years, incredibly mixed. There are periods where that relationship holds and actually periods where it's completely the opposite. So from my perspective, you know, trying to learn a bit from history, that seems more like one of those things that's, you know, a convenient narrative than really fundamental science about the market. Let me just ask you about that. You know, it comes back to fundamental science, but in, in the 30 or 40 year period, uh, the, re- the track record is mixed. Do you know why? It's kind of difficult to say, isn't it? But again, you know, referring you to why I think value works, I think it's because it's a behavioral thing. So over a period of time, you know, the behavioral aspect of the of the market comes out. You know, Japan is a market where you've had three decades of nothing but incredibly depressed interest rates and basically deflation. Values worked as a strategy pretty consistently over that three-decade period out in that market. And it's not something that's a kind of convenient truth for people who are kind of very sold on the narrative around the interest rate movement. But ultimately, it kind of suggests a little bit to my mind that there's a correlation there, but there's not necessarily a fundamental causation and that we need to look elsewhere for the justifications about why certain stocks and sectors are doing well and why some are doing badly and whether or not that's the truth forever or whether or not that's an opportunity to make money. All right, so I'm going to come back to that from from a more specific standpoint. But let's more broadly speaking, Europe has seen value outperform of late. Is that because there's a wide valuation differential between European stocks and other areas of the world, or is there some other driver at work? Yeah, I mean, this fascinating, isn't it? Because you know, as as you kind of highlighted earlier, if we look at the performance of the U.S., actually, you know, value's doing okay, but really, that's much more to do in the first you know, first you know, short period of this year, 2022, that's much more to do with growth disappointing in terms of performance than the value part of the market doing well, as it were. And whilst that's great relative performance, the truth is you care about whether or not what you own is going up, not whether or not everyone else is doing badly. I mean, that's just fundamentally true. So if you were to look at Europe, which is also performing well from a value perspective, but it's happening in a fundamentally different way, you know, value stocks are actually going up. The truth is, is that Europe's been pretty depressed for a long period of time. Actually, if you were to look at the the valuation multiples of the value index in the US, so like the cheapest parts of the market, it's basically completely in line with the entire European index, i.e. the entire European index is the same valuation of the cheapest bit of the US, which tells you a lot about how cheap some of the things in Europe are and within certain European markets, even more cheap. So the UK for lots of reasons we could talk about and probably most people know about has been very depressed and in relative terms has been getting cheaper and cheaper versus rest of world for you know well over 10 years yeah yeah let, let me let me just kind of throw throw a monkey wrench in the conversation to a certain extent so when um we said it's not necessarily dependent on interest rates that that value outperform the one thing that is interesting uk notwithstanding is that european central bank is going to be it appears slower uh, to tighten monetary policy than, let's say, the UK, the US, Canada, and, and Australia. Is is that helpful, the fact that the ECB appears to be lagging as far as a monetary tightening is concerned? I mean, the thing about Europe is is that it's a bit of a muddle in some respects. You know, it's, it's made up of a lot of different economies and geographies that are moving at different paces and different things are happening. And, and within that, there's just so many different companies and sectors and you know many of them are multinational right so you know healthcare sector is pretty homogenous globally and the fact you happen to be listed in the uk or europe or the us you're exposed to the same drivers but you're potentially getting quite different financing backdrops 
that may be influential going forward. But I think, you know, if you're a fundamental stock picker, if you're a fund manager, the thing you're trying to do, the thing we're all trying to do is avoid ending up with portfolios that are single macro macro bet portfolios. You know, it's it's not, you know, if you're fantastic at reading the macro tea leaves, then fine. But most people aren't. And even if you are, if you get it wrong, it's horrible if your entire portfolio moves one way. So what we're kind of looking for is to try and diversify within the value space. That's been harder over the last 10 years because so much of value has been exposed to areas like banking, commodities, you know, oil and gas and mining. And, and that's made it very concentrated. And some people think quite pro-cyclical. But actually, what's interesting about that is, is that many of those sectors are quite long term, quite enduring, have done quite well and actually held up quite well in the financial downturn that we saw as a result of COVID, which surprised a lot of people. And to me, that kind of suggests if you buy decent businesses with, you know, fundamental long term business models and reasonable balance sheets, you're probably going to survive no matter what. And there's still money to be made. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. All right, let me ask you about that because you, you mentioned energy, and, and we know here in the U.S. anyway, financials have done, at least in 2021, they've done reasonably well. And those are two areas that, that in 2021 were among the best performers in, in the domestic market here in the U.S. Energy in particular is interesting because it still appears to be almost solely reliant on, on the price of crude. How do you view that given the, the big gains that we saw last year? Uh, obviously, there's some people calling for $100 oil. There are concerns about potential for energy sanctions on Russia if they invade Ukraine and, and the like. Is, is, is energy had its run or is there more to go? I mean, it's kind of interesting. Energy is like a, a pretty big ecosystem, right? Everything from the kind of large integrated oil and gas companies to the smaller support service businesses to the renewables companies underneath that coming up. So it's, it's a very, very big ecosystem. So you can kind of look across that. One of the things that I always find fascinating is, is that if you go and look at the big energy or integrated companies and you go and look at their relationship with oil and gas, it's not nearly as clear as people think. So when the oil price goes up, yeah, they tend to make reasonable levels of free cash flow. But actually, many of these businesses make the same, same level of free cash flow per share at $80 oil as they do at $40 or $120. Because over time, a lot of their costs adjust to the new normal. And actually, it's hard to make a much higher margin in any environment. You know, So those are businesses. And, and also, a huge proportion of their profits is coming from refining and marketing, which is effectively a pass-through. So they're not pure play EMP companies. But if you look at the support service chain for those businesses. They've been absolutely destroyed. So rig companies and platform businesses and anyone providing into that chain. I I think the thing about oil and gas is, uh, in particular, is it's become a complete lightning rod. The reality is, is that these are businesses that need to be part of the transition, part of the solution, rather than, as historically people point out, you know, being just part of the problem of climate change and of transition. They're in a great position to be part of the solution, to have a positive impact in terms of changing their behaviors and contributing to pretty complicated technical solutions to problems that we all face. I think that there's an opportunity in many of those sectors to make money and be paid to wait in many cases, cash in your hand through dividends and buybacks, make money and also do good over time. Right now, that's a bit of anathema to most people. They see it very simply as if you go anywhere near one of those businesses, you're on the wrong side of the uh, of the climate debate. 
I don't think yeah. it's that simple. And, and w w although I'm going to name a name and it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm asking you if it's in your portfolio, but Exxon just came out this week and said uh, they were going to be carbon neutral or zero net by 2050 and that they're accelerating their program. Uh, the, among the biggest in the world, they're now saying that they are, in fact, going to be part of the solution. And everybody kind of blanches at that and says, well, you know, the, you know, mm. the Maldives oil spill, <laughs> you know, you, you have documentation yeah, yeah. about climate change over the last 40 years. Yeah, sure. We believe you. Yeah, look, I, 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 and I get that. And, and actually, it's really interesting because the US is one of the more progressive parts of the world. And in terms of company dynamics, they're usually at the forefront of all the trends. And ESG is one of the areas where Europe's been leading very strongly over the last kind of five or six years. And those businesses are some way ahead. And, and I think companies like Exxon are, are kind of you know waking up to that and they're, they're kind of grasping the nettle here. I don't think it's an all or nothing. What you tend to see is people saying, we'll never invest, you know, I don't want you investing in any hydrocarbons ever again. And, you know, I need you to go 100% into photovoltaics and offshore wind farms and all the rest of it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where we think we're getting the energy from to build these wind farms and, and these, you know, photovoltaic panels. There is going to be a transition here. This is not an overnight issue. So, and we need to balance that. We need to understand that and we need to factor that in. And I think that can be done in a way that, you know, these businesses shouldn't be kind of low single digit PE multiple type companies because they're on the naughty set for the next 50 years. Actually, when you look at what they're doing within there, a lot of money is being spent on renewables and quite exciting stuff. There are some pretty exciting consumer franchises in there, too, in terms of, you know, the 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 infrastructure and the forecourts around um, supplying petrol, but then subsequently electricity for transport for other things, you know, and, and also these core enduring hydrocarbon franchises where that will generate a reasonable amount of cash flow over a long period of time to invest in these things, but also to keep shareholders happy while we transition. Yeah. All right, so let's talk more regionally and stepping away from specific industries. Uh, when you look around the world uh, for value, where do you find it? Okay, that's. I mean, that's a great question. The MSCI world these days is unbelievably polarized. You know, seventy percent of that index is the U.S. Right, and the index in the U.S. is at one of the highest Cape multiples. It's only been higher than this once before. And you know, if we're, you've got to, You've got to call a spade a spade. You, you've you've got to you've got to look at the truth here and kind of ask yourself. You know, what does that mean? Well, in the context of history, this is a valuation from which you've never made a positive return over the next 10 years. That's not to say we won't. There are some amazing businesses in the US, but it's harder from here than it has been historically. But that's not true everywhere. So if you go and we talked a little bit previously about Europe, we've talked a bit about the UK within that being particularly depressed, but also opportunities in areas like Japan for the first time in a long time. You know, that's, that's an area where we're starting to see change on the corporate side. A lot of private equity money going into Japan at the moment. And activism picking up stuff that's just been anathema for the last 20 years is suddenly happening and there's money being made and then also Although emerging that market is up a lot right i mean the japanese market it would not necessarily last year but off its lows you know we've gone from 7000 ads nader in the early 1990s all the way up to nearly 30000 which is 10000 points shy of its all time high it's been a pretty good run over the last couple of years yeah, I mean, yes, that's absolutely true. But, you know, you said something right at the end there that, that I think is, is an interesting point, which is how many markets aren't at their all-time highs today? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that market had an all-time high like 30 years ago, right? So yeah, yeah, in terms of where we've come. 1989, yeah. 
you know, so in terms of where we've come from, I think sometimes you get these situations where stocks and even stock markets go up a very long way. And we kind of look at that and go, yeah, but how much more is there to go for? And then you look at the valuation and go, oh, OK, you know, fine. If, 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 I, if I genuinely thought that margins were going to head up, head up more towards Euro, US or European levels, if I thought that, you know, this was going to result in these companies becoming more economically competitive versus rest of the world and sales growth was going to come off the back of that. If I actually thought they might buy back some shares, the leverage effect of all of that on share prices and on returns could be, uh, I mean, momentous. I mean, we're not getting carried away here, you know, but we do think relative rest of world, it's a really interesting part of the world. Now, what about China? While we're spending time uh, in the Far East, um, it had a not a great year last year. Uh, China's central bank, unlike central banks in the West, is actually cutting interest rates, not raising them. Mm. But they are filled with problems, whether in the property sector, whether they have demographic issues, whether it's President Xi's upcoming party congress later in the year that may install him as a president for life, geopolitical risk. Is China a value trap or does it represent some opportunity here? It's, I mean, China's such a massive market today, but in the future that I think it's hard to generalize, really. You know, it is inherently a, a country of conflicts, right? In some ways, it's got one of the most advanced kind of, you know, bleeding edge economies in terms of its kind of entrepreneurialism, in terms of its drive into technology. And, you know, areas like banking just look way ahead of other parts of the world. And in other respects, it's quite kind of arcane and has some quite, you know, challenged practices. It's quite centrally driven. You know, the political piece there is and the governance piece is is probably pretty challenging. Right. So. It's a kind of it's a region of contradictions. But actually, again, if you're a stock picker, contradictions kind of helpful. It mm-hmm. means opportunity. It means dispersion. It means diversity of, of ideas. Right. So within that, there's some really interesting kind of opportunities, whether or not that happens to be in some of the financial areas, some of the industrial areas. And even with the setback we've seen in tech, you know, is that going to create an opportunity over the next couple of years to buy into some pretty incredible franchises at depressed valuations. We, we wait and see. We're not there yet today, but it is a country that presents a lot of opportunity. What about the risks? I mean, just to, to be perfectly blunt, I mean, we, we know that China's become more aggressive in the South China Sea. In fact, just chased a U.S. warship out of there uh, this week. We, we know that there are worries that if Russia were to make a move on Ukraine, China could use that as an opportunity, a distraction, if you will, in quotes, to, to make a move mm. on Taiwan. Um, if something along those lines were to happen and we have this rupture between East and West, how how destructive would that be for a China thesis as far as investing is going? I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think it's just China, right? Like if you look <laughs> at the rise of inequality around the world based on what's happened, you know, it's a kind of very, very well touted road and argument around actually a very, very low interest rates have fired up asset prices that's disproportionately helped the you know richest 1% around the world and typically if you look at I- income inequality as a driver over the long term it tends to destabilize things it tends to produce environments where fights happen people get uncomfortable and you get polarization in politics too you know when things are so far from the center where they were 20 years ago so left and right these days china yeah but We've also got Russia and the Ukraine. We've got, you know, there are there are lots of areas here involving big countries, and all of that is, you know, nervous making. To be honest with you, mm. I think 
again, come back to human emotions here. You've got to tread quite carefully. Um, probably, to be honest with you, when we start to think about these big picture events like this, people worry, you know, I, as, as much as anyone else, you're worried about more than just your portfolio. Yeah. You know, you're worried about your way of life. So you've got to think a bit about these and be careful. But within that, the world has come close to disaster many, many, many more times than it has come to disaster. Um, and, and that typically over the last hundred years has created many, many more opportunities for people to look long term and to be brave than it has for people to lose money. All right. I want to leave it on that note because that's a very positive outlook. And um Yes, it's very easy to get upset and get concerned. And, and, and when you look back on history, we've come even closer during other periods than we might be right now. So on that note, Nick, thanks very much. Appreciate your joining us today and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for your time. Nick Carriage, Fund Manager of Equities at Schroeder's, joining us from London. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroeders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcasts at Schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. <laughs>